0: If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Zechariah? You may not be familiar with Zechariah, but you can just find the book of Matthew and turn two books to the left and you'll be right there at Zechariah. We're actually going to spend two weeks in the book of Zechariah. We're only supposed to spend one, but honestly, I've been totally entranced uh, by the book. I hope that comes out in some way. And uh, rather than preaching a really, really long sermon, I'm going to preach two sermons. Uh, from the book of Zechariah So this morning we're going to start in the first eight cha- uh, the first six chapters of the book of Zechariah There are eight visions that are given to Zechariah This morning we're going to look at two of those visions That will give you a really good sense of, the, uh, of what the visions entail And then next week we're going to look at the conclusion and see how that comes together We'll read together Zechariah chapter 3 and we'll read the whole chapter together It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men. Who are assigned, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Let's pray to the Lord together. Lord, this morning I have a simple prayer. Show us Jesus. Show us Jesus. Let us look upon Christ as you have presented him in the scriptures. Let us cherish and adore him. Let us be comforted and set free by him. Let us be assured and secured by him. God, increase our passion for his name. Increase our love for his person. Increase our security in his hands. Oh, you have made him the king of kings and the high priest that is above all high priests. And Lord, he is at the same time my brother, our brother. God, what security there is. Lord, I pray this morning that as we look upon the portrait of Christ, that our own spirits would be comforted, assured, encouraged, lifted. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, I want to do a quick survey. By the showing of hands, I want you to think of your home screen on your iPhone. And by a show of hands, I want to know how many of you have as the home screen of your iPhone a person That is dear to you. Isn't that astonishing? That you put right there as your background. Someone who you already know what they look like. You already know. You already know the color of her hair. And the beauty of her eyes. You already know the delicacy of her features. You already know everything about those little babies. Or maybe that pet that you have. You already know everything about them, and yet you put them right there so that you can see them every time you pick up your phone. And a lot of the time, sure, you pick it up, and you don't really pay much attention, and maybe you don't really notice. But there are times in which you do, don't you? And you're caught there in the midst of a crazy and chaotic day, and you look down there upon someone that you cherish, someone that you adore, someone that you know loves you and whom you love. And it helps you put life in perspective, doesn't it? In the midst of a chaotic day, sometimes you can look down at that simple home screen and you can be reminded that you have a place in this world, that you have somebody that cares for you and loves you and is committed to you. You have someone that you love and you are committed to. It helps you zoom out and see the bigger picture, doesn't it? I think it would be an interesting survey too to go around if we had the opportunity and to ask each one of us why it is that you chose the particular picture that you chose on your home screen. By the way, if you have a landscape, it's fine. I'm not, this no, no shame on you. I've, I've done that too. But why you chose the particular picture that you do. So, sometimes you're scrolling through your pictures. You're getting nostalgic. You're getting sentimental. And then you see a picture of him. Or you see a picture of her. Or you see a picture of them. And it just, it's like it reveals a new degree of brilliance. That's present. It's, it's like you see that person in a fresh light and you're astounded one more time. You're, you're amazed one more time. Or, or sometimes there's a picture and it just so perfectly captures who they are that you, you look at that picture and you think, oh, that is so them. That is so her. That is so him. And, and you love that picture because it so captures the essence of that person and so by having that picture on your back screen you look at it and you cherish it and you adore it and by seeing that picture that so perfectly captures the essence of who they are it's refreshment to your soul isn't it again very often you blow right through it but but when you see it when when you behold it when you stop for just a second and and you really remember it again it just brings renewal to your spirit. And it can make a bad day a little bit better. It can make a hard day a little bit easier. It can make discouragement a little, a little less discouraging. And I think that's why the last thing the church needs is another sermon. Another how-to sermon on finance and dating and relationships. That what the church needs is to freshly behold the portraits of Christ. If I preach to you a how-to sermon, I look coals upon your head. I'm telling you more that you have to do. More responsibilities that you have to have. And of course we have responsibilities. But if I can show you Christ, if I can show you Christ, oh, you've seen him a thousand times. You can, you've seen Him day in and day out. You've heard a thousand sermons. But if I can show you Christ and you can behold Christ, it reminds you that you have a place that you belong. It reminds you that you have someone that loves you. It reminds you that there is a bigger picture in play. It reminds you as you cherish the portrait of Christ. It is a renewal of your spirit. I really think that's one of the main purposes of the book of Zechariah. That Zechariah prophesies... That we might have a portrait of Christ, that we might have a portrait of the saving nature of God, the the delivering, loving nature of God. That our spirits might be renewed and reset so that in the midst of all the chaos and in the midst of all the fear and in the midst of all the the threats and in the midst of all the suffering and hardship, we can be reminded that we have a place that we belong and we have one to whom we belong, and he loves us, and he's for us, and he's defending us. And so I want us to look at these, I want to look at two of these eight, the the, the, six cha- the first six chapters, as I mentioned, have eight visions of give, given to Zechariah. and I want us to see two, and you'll, there's really kind of a form that, These visions typically take that I've really used to structure the sermon today. But I think these visions are meant to show us Christ. Did you know that apart from the Psalms, if you look at the passion narratives at the ends of the gospel, that is Jesus' approach of the cross, Jesus' crucifixion upon the cross, Jesus' burial in the ground, that Zechariah is the second most quoted book in the Passion Gospels? Oh, We don't think it's relevant. We've never heard of it before, perhaps. We've never read it before, perhaps. Oh, brothers and sisters, it will set our hearts on fire. So this is what I want us to see. I want us to see two shocking pictures with two surprising explanations and two securing promises that each of them land on. First, I want you to see how God clears his people. How God clears his people. When I was in college, I worked at Win dixie in Jacksonville. And for a period of time, I was the guy that was in charge of the safe. I had to make sure that all the tills had the money that they needed, the cashiers, and I had to make sure that the cashiers didn't have too much money. I had to make sure at the end of the day that all of the dollars were accounted for. I had to reconcile the safe. In the middle of the night, it was Actually, pretty stressful. It's a a lot of responsibility, a lot of money uh, at a very early time in my life. And I've found it to be pretty terrifying. And one of the responsibilities that came with being in charge of the safe is they trained you what to do in the case of a robbery. And in the case of a robbery, one of the responsibilities that I had was to give them particular sets of bills. Right? That some of the bills that we had in our safe were marked. And they were marked so that if the person came and robbed from us, then attempted to use the money that they stole from us, that those bills could be traced to those transactions to help you find the person. Another thing that we had is that there was a a bag of bills that I was supposed to hand over to the assailant. And inside that bag of bills, there was a, a, a purple dye. And when you opened that bag, that dye would... Explode onto the person and it would cover them from head to toe in purple dye. And then you could just trace them to the dye. You saw the person walking through town covered in purple with purple under their fingernails. You know the cat that robbed the Winn Dixie. Well, Zachariah's fourth vision, he gives us remarkable insight into the spiritual warfare that you and I are all engaged in but can't see. He shows the holy man of Israel, the high priest, Joshua, teetering on the dividing edge of judgment. There is a prosecution, Satan himself. And Satan literally means accuser. And So here is the accuser himself and he is leveling accusations at the holy representative of all of Israel. And he's pointing out that this man has transgressed the law of God. In this judgment, if uh, Joshua is found to be guilty, there are no appeals. The judgment is final, and it is a condemning one. If he is acquitted, if he is exonerated, there will never again be a retrial. He is acquitted and exonerated forever. The problem is is that the prosecution, the accuser, Satan, has an airtight case. It's not like it was in the case with Christ, where the uh, charges are trumped up and imagined and exaggerated. He's guilty of every account that he's charged with. Not only is he guilty of every account that he's charged with, it's evident on the clothes that he wore. It says there that he has cover, he is wearing filthy Garments. That is, that the purple dye from the safe is covering the holy man of Israel. That he's standing there and Satan is pointing at him and he's saying, This is the man that has robbed the safe. This is the man that has transgressed the law. He is apparently and obviously guilty. Now, what you have to understand is this vision that Zechariah is giving, giving him, given to, given him, that is given to Zechariah, is a shocking one. It's a shocking one. There was nobody better dressed in all of Israel than the high priest. The high priest was the representative of the people of God before the presence of God. He would once a year go into the Holy of Holies and he had to be dressed and uh, and. Uh, cleaned to perfection so that he could go in he would wear a clean turban on his head and the turban was representative of the covering over his sins he would wear holy vestments pure vestments and they were they were symbolic of the requirements that god's righteousness require that he requires sinlessness he requires cleanliness he requires perfection and so when you saw the high priest he never had a hair out of place but here he is wearing filthy garments. The word filthy, this is shocking, actually means excrement. Think about this. That here is the holy man of Israel. The one who is supposed to be, out of all the people of Israel, the cleanest. The one above all of Israel is supposed to be the holiest. The one in all of Israel that is supposed to be the righteousness. And there on his garments, there on his clothes is the excrement of his sinfulness. The excrement of his guilt. And so a judgment does come. The angel of the Lord, as the presiding judge over the case, hears the prosecution's case, sees the purple dye covering the holy man of Israel, and he issues a judgment, and he says this, The Lord rebuke you, but who is you? It is Satan. That the judgment of condemnation comes as expected, but the judgment of condemnation does not come against the accused. The judgment comes against the accuser. It's shocking, it's not expected. In fact, the angel of the Lord looks to the accused and he says, You as though a smoldering twig in a raging inferno, I will pluck you out as a brand plucked from the fire. I will clean you of your filth. I will clothe you in a clean, pure vestment. I will give to you a clean turban. I will remove from you what those things symbolize. I will remove from you your sin and your iniquity. Shock of all shocks. So the question begins, how is this possible? That the Lord cleans the guilty. The Lord cleans the guilty. I want to bring your attention there to the fact that this is, in fact, the angel of the Lord. We see it here. In verse 1, we see it again here in verse 6. That it's the angel of the Lord that's talking. And what's amazing about the angel of the Lord is we've seen him a number of different times. And he's not just any old angel, is he? We saw him there when he wrestled with Jacob and tweaked his hip. And do you remember what the caption is above that in your Bible? Jacob wrestles with whom? An angel? A messenger? Jacob wrestles with God. That what we see in the angel of the Lord is there in verse 2. He says, and the Lord said to him. This is the angel of the Lord speaking. And what does it just say? It says, and the Lord said to him. So here is the angel of the Lord and he is speaking to Zechariah, to Joshua as God. Okay, but then look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 7 shows the angel of the Lord again speaking. In verse 2, he speaks as God. But then in verse 7, he speaks on behalf of God. Thus says the Lord of hosts. It brings into our mind, I think, the way John opens his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. That there is one who is God and who is separate from God. That there is one who speaks as God and yet speaks distinctly as his own person. That I feel, according to my understanding, that when we see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, we are beholding a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity. That here he is, he's coming, and he's intervening in the midst of this In the midst of this vision and standing in behalf of the holy man of Israel who is actually not holy. And what does he do? He does what the person of Christ always does. He cleans him of his filth. He removes from him his sin. And he gives him a garment of his own righteousness. He gives him and provides for him the righteousness and the holiness that are otherwise strange to him and alien to him. But what does this accomplish? I think that's significant here. What does that accomplish? Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge. That is another way of saying, if you will place your faith in me, if you will devote your heart to me, if you will love me, if you will commit to me, if your heart is radically changed here and now, then you shall Rule my house and have my charge of courts, and I will give you the right of access. Who does Ephesians chapter 2 say gives us access? Christ! Christ! And what does the holy priest need to be any use to his people? He needs access to the Holy of Holies so that he can go in on behalf of his people and represent his people in the presence of God and not be incinerated on the spot. So what does Christ accomplish in Joshua's life? Oh, he pardons him. Oh, he cleans him oh he credits him with righteousness oh but brothers and sisters it isn't so that Joshua will be remain passive it is because now Joshua is useful he is useful in the hands of God and he is helpful to the good of his people this is what Christ accomplishes for you and me this is what Christ accomplishes for you and me we look to Christ and we remember our filth don't we how covered in the excrement of our sin we are. And we think, you have to find somebody else. Somebody else has to disciple the, t- the, the teenagers. Somebody righteous has to go and minister to the children. Somebody, somebody better has to go and teach the class. Somebody better has to preach the gospel. Somebody better has to go to the nation. Somebody better has to be a missionary. And the Lord looks to us and he says, I know. That's why I found someone better. My son. And my son has changed you. And my son has given to you a new robe. And my son has given to you a new righteousness. So you are not in your filth. You are not in your sin. You are not in your uselessness. My son has made you useful to me. Not a single one of you have an excuse not to be used in the hands of God if you've known Christ because Christ has made you, as he made Joshua, fit for the access to the crown of Christ. But there's a question. How can this be just? How can this be just? How can this be right? All of the, all of the uh, every single inkling and explanation of justice is saying, here is a man covered in the dye of the safe. He ought to be prosecuted to the full extent. the law but here is the lord and the lord is cleansing the filthy filthy how does he do it that's the surprising explanation that the king will pardon the guilty the king will pardon the guilty now listen when i say the word pardon I think we may have in our minds a presidential pardon. You know, the president goes and he, no, ma- no matter what you've done, if the president signs the right piece of paper with the right information on it, you can go home scot-free. You, you all remember when the Tiger King was sitting, had the limo parked outside waiting for, his, waiting for his pardon. But that's not really what's in view. I, I think it's partially in view that there is a declaration of innocence, sure. But it's an incomplete picture that what i mean when i say the word pardon is not just that a pardon has been declared i mean that a pardon has been accomplished i mean that a pardon has been purchased i mean that a pardon has been secured that this is not someone overlooking sin this is someone overcoming sin so much different i say that because there are three messianic titles How is this going to happen? How are we going to experience the pardon of the king? How is it that we're going to be justly made clean by the Lord? The Messiah is going to come. The one long promise from God is going to come and he's going to accomplish it. He's going to secure our pardon Here in our chapter, and again, this is mesmerizing to me. There were so many different allusions to Christ throughout the book of Zechariah. I hope you picked up on them as you read, that it was hard for me to even choose. But look at what it says in verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. Branch is capitalized in your Bible, isn't it? It's because it's not a surprise to the people that have kept up with the narrative. They know this isn't just a dude. They know this isn't just some cat, some king showing up. This is a promised one. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land. So how is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? It's going to happen through the servant, through the branch, through the stone. Three different messianic allusions this to the promised one. Who's the servant? Oh, y'all, I'm not going to give you a lot here. I'm not going to give you a lot. We're about to do four weeks through the servant songs of the book of Isaiah, and you're going to see this in high definition, I can assure you. But the Prophecy, the prophet Isaiah, 600 years before the Christ, 100 years before Zechariah, had said that there is going to be a servant who is going to come and he's going to reveal the heart of God and he's going to perform miracles so that you can see that he is righting all that is wrong in this broken up world. And he is going to heal every single sinner that will believe upon him. The, go- the government is going to rest upon his shoulders. And he's going to accomplish it. How is he going to accomplish it? The servant is going to have stripes on his back. And by those stripes... You will be healed. That there is a king coming, but this king is going to be the servant. Isaiah 11. Getting to the branch now. He says that from the shoot of Jesse, from the shoot of Jesse, there is going to be one who is going to make the world right again. Jeremiah in chapter 23 and in chapter 33 picks this theme up. Look at there in verse 23 what he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, while I will raise up for David. So what does he have in mind here? He has in mind a king. He's talking about someone who's going to reestablish the throne of David to fulfill the covenant that God has made to his king. I will raise up for David a righteous, what? Branch. This is before Zechariah. This is why it's not a surprise. They know it's coming. This is not just some dude. This is the dude. A righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now listen to verse 5. This is my favorite part. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. This is what's going to be the result. How is he going to accomplish it? And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness that literally the name of the king that is coming literally the name of the branch that is the offshoot from the stump of jesse that is going to set the world aright and establish a new world order and a new kingdom that spreads the renown of his name to the nations of the earth literally his name is going to be i remove your filth and give you my righteousness it's going to be his name it's who he is. It's the essence of his character. It's the essence of his personhood. It's the center of his mission. I'm going to remove your iniquity, your filth, and I'm going to give you my righteousness. That brings us to the, the, third, uh, the third messianic name that we are used there. He says, before behold, on the stone that I have set before you, Joshua, on a single stone, there will be seven eyes. The seven eyes, uh, he goes on in the very next chapter... To describe that the seven eyes points to the omniscience of God. That he is an all-seeing, all-knowing God. He sees the corners of the earth. He sees the intricacies of your heart. He knows the motivations of your mind. He knows the focus and the devotion of your life. He knows everything. And he knows that the temple that is being built right now during Haggai and Zechariah's time. During Zerubbabel and Joshua's time. It is a temple that will not stand. It is a temple that will not last very long. It is a temple that, though constructed from the ruins, will return to the ruins. And so he's going to build a different temple. He's going to lay a cornerstone that will not be overturned. But who is this cornerstone? Psalm 118, there at the bottom of the screen, the stone... That the builders rejected, does that bring in First Peter chapter 2 that we read to start the service? I wanted to show it all of you we didn't have the ability to do that. There's not so much space here, not so much time here. But all of these connections are coming together. The stone that the builders rejected has become the corner stone, that there is going to be a stone that is going to be laid and upon that stone is going to be constructed a temple, a temple that is unassailable, a temple that cannot be conquered, a temple to which no one will lay siege, a temple that will never again return to ruins, a temple that will be raised on the third day and never conquered once more. That is, that what we see here in the picture of the Messiah is that he is a king. From the stump of Jesse, who will serve his people, be rejected by his people, and serving his people and being rejected by his people, he will save and deliver his people. He will overcome their sins, not overlook their sins. And That's valuable to you and I. Because the prosecution is going to come against you too. Spiritual warfare is going to rage against you too. The accuser is going to come against you too. And he's going to say, look at his life. Look at her garments. Look at who she was. Look at what he's done. Look at all the evil and wickedness and defiance in the name of god look at the drifting of their mind look at the look at the sinfulness of their actions look at the corruption of their motives look at how filthy their attitudes are look at who they are and as the accusations of the enemy come against you as the prosecution levels its offense against you you have to have a sermon to preach back to the devil. And brothers and sisters, when we talk back to the devil, this is what we say. I am clean. I am clean. I am covered in the righteousness of the Messiah. I am covered under the king of all kings. I have been offered the stone that is the chief cornerstone. And upon him my life is built. Not my own righteousness. Not my own sinfulness. Not my own goodness. Upon the cornerstone of Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's be a church that talks back to the devil. Let's be brothers and sisters that talk back to the devil. Because he has already been overcome. And that gives way to a securing promise. That the kingdom will flourish forever. Look there at verse 10. It lands here. He says, in That day, in the day of the Messiah, in the day of the Lord, when the new kingdom has been established, when the new world order has been inaugurated, declares the Lord, every one of you will invite, isn't that an interesting word, his neighbor to come under his vine and under his tree. I love this imagery of under. He's just told us that the Lord is a branch, the Messiah is a branch. Our hope is in the branch. And here's what he says You're going to live in the shade of that branch. You're going to live beneath the fruitfulness of that branch you're gonna leave, live under the protection of that branch you're gonna live under the provision of that branch and you're gonna enjoy grace to such an extent you're gonna enjoy peace to such an extent you're going to enjoy fruitfulness to such an extent that you're gonna know I'm never running out I'm never without. That there is going to be a level of contentment that is going to come upon you by the provision of Christ that makes you say, I have enough to share with everyone. I want to invite my neighbor under the branch. I want to invite my children under the branch. I want to invite my boss under the branch. I want everyone in my community under the branch because there's plenty for everyone. He has secured a provision of righteousness, a provision of goodness, a provision of security beneath which there is no end. Oh, this is why Paul says, contentment with godliness is great gain. When you have Christ, and Christ is all you need, and the enemy can't take Christ from you, he may take your car, but he can't have Christ. So who cares if he has the car? He may take your job, but he can't have Christ. Christ is all you need. Let him have the job. He may take from you every single semblance of wealth, prosperity, success, That you can have in this life. But let him have it all. I have Christ. And if I have Christ, not only do I have enough, I have enough to share. I have enough to share. I have enough to give to others because I have Christ. And if I have the perspective that all I have to have is Christ, what can the accuser threaten me with? What can he withhold from me that I have to have? What can he come against me? Oh, in that case, the power of sin, the power of death, the power that the flesh has over me has been defeated in totality. Because I have the branch. I have the branch. This is how God clears his people. It's not whimsically. It's not flippantly. It's decisively. Next, I want you to see how God builds his kingdom. How God builds his kingdom. So, the main idea of the book of Zechariah, and he says this explicitly in chapter 8, is that I intend to do good to the people of Jerusalem. The main idea is for them to know that God is committed to their good. That God is not just committed to their good, he's good to accomplish it. He's committed to accomplishing their good. And he's going to bring about their good. And he's going to, to do them in such a way that they are astonished by how good it is. And he says that he's going to begin to accomplish this through two conduits. Zerubbabel, who is the king, the son of David. And Joshua, who's been the main uh, character of our story so far, the high priest. That God is going to use them as conduits of his glory through which his promises will pass that will ultimately bring about they're good. He he compares them in one of the visions to two olive trees, olives. It was the oil that could light the heat of the house and these olive trees were never going to spoil, never going to go the, the light, the warmth was never going away. That's the point. And so there's a shocking thing that happens. We're expecting a coronation. Here they are, they're back in the promised land, having been in exile, Zerubbabel, the promised king, in the line of David. He's going to be the conduit through which God's glory pours, and so we're expecting him to be crowned. And so Zechariah looks to the men that are around him, and he says, all your silver and all your gold, I want them. And he melts them down, and he creates a crown with two rings. One of the rings is gold, that's, usual, that's the typical crown of the king. And then there's another ring of silver, that would be symbolic of the priesthood. And he takes the crown, and he's preparing to coronate someone, and he lays the crown upon Joshua's head. The priest is crowned. Now, we're about to have a coronation of our own, aren't we? King Charles is about to be crowned the king of the United kingdom, something that probably none of us have at least have any recollection of, in our life, in our lifetimes, and you all know how this thing's going to go down. We, by the way, my phone and news notification thinks I am way more interested in the Royals than I actually am. Anybody else? Can I get an amen on that? I mean, apparently there are people that are just eating this stuff up, but I'm I'm, I'm kind of over it myself. That, that's that's why we we rebelled, right? We're not interested in the King. Yeah, y'all with me, huh? Roll Tide. All right. So so imagine, okay, so you're going to have this ceremony and it's going to be scripted and produced down to the T, right? And it's an ancient ceremony that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And every news outlet in all the world is going to be there making sure that they're covering the coronation of the king. And so imagine they're in Westminster Abbey. There is King Charles and all of his regalia. There is the found. There are all the dignitaries. And imagine when the time of the coronation comes that the crown is placed instead upon the archbishop of canterbury most people in the world would say the what is that a jelly right it would be pandemonium it would be pandemonium what right does he have to the king's crown what right does he have to put upon his own head the crown that was the ancestral heritage of Charles who does he think he is what are they doing everybody would go ballistic this is exactly the case here that here we have the crown being placed upon the priest and Zechariah is saying it in a way he, he's astonished that it's even taking place he can't believe that it's happening but what's amazing is I think what we're being told here is it's being placed upon Joshua's head But this is not Joshua's crown. It's being placed upon Joshua's head, but this is not Joshua's crown. I I say that because we see it in a, a few different places. It says, Behold the man whose name is what? The branch. The branch. We've already been told about the branch, and the branch is not Joshua. And yet, here is Zechariah getting this vision. They're saying, Place the crown of the king upon the head of the priest and say, Behold the branch. So, this is about Joshua. Joshua is not really about Joshua. This is about the branch. For he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple. We've already been told in a vision in chapter four that Zerubbabel is the one that's going to build the temple. And yet, here he is pointing to Joshua and saying, Here he is. He's going to build the temple. He's not going to build the temple. This is talking about Joshua. It's not really talking about Joshua. This is the case with so much prophecy. And if you're going to interpret it, you have to have an appreciation for that. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on the throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. And here's verse 14, our final clue. And the crown shall be in the temple. Shall be in the temple. That is, this isn't a crown that Joshua was going to wear. This is the crown that they're going to place in the temple. And every time he puts on the clean turban, every time he puts on the pure vestments, every time he goes in remembering his filth in the presence of the Lord, he's going to enter into the temple. And there in the temple is going to be the crown, the crown with two rings, a golden ring and a silver ring. And he's going to remember this is not about him. This is not about his righteousness. This is not about his goodness. This is not about what he can do. This is about the one who is coming. And we're seeing an advancement in the story that there is a Messiah that is coming. And he's always been known to be the king. But he's not just going to be the king. He's going to be the priest king. That there are going to be a joining of these offices together, a consolidation of kinghood and priesthood that are going to be brought together in the line of Melchizedek, the scriptures tell us, into a single man to be bestowed upon him as he is coronated as the anointed one of the Lord. And what will this priest-king do? Oh, this priest-king has work to do. This priest-king has a mission to accomplish. This priest-king is going to build the temple. See, the work of the king is to build the temple. The work of the priest is to offer sacrifices in the temple. So the king constructs, he oversees the construction. It's his job to provide the funding, to provide the administration, to provide the builders. And so he's going to provide that. And then the responsibility of the high priest is to go in and to make atonement in representation of the people in the presence of God for the sins of the people. But here is a... a, A priest king that's coming the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the the temple. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. But now, another surprising thing, it's going to be a priest who is on the throne. Who sits on thrones? It's not priests, it's kings. But there is one in whom the priest and the king are the same guy. And that gets to how he's going to build the temple. How is he going to build the temple? Well, kings build temples. So as the king, he's going to put into place everything that is necessary for the construction of the temple. He's going to oversee to ensure to its completion that the temple is built and that it is accomplished. He's going to spread his arms and he's going to say, it is finished. This is what kings do as they designate temples. But how does he purchase it? How does he build it? By laying a stone. As the high priest, the preparation for the altar. And as the high priest, what sacrifice does he lay upon the altar? He lays his own body upon the altar. And so it is through the sacrifice of the high priest himself that as the priest king, through that sacrifice, he will now construct a temple built upon that cornerstone. And what materials... Will he use? Oh, brothers and sisters, this is what on this side of the cross we now know. This is what Peter is explaining to us when he's making all of these allusions back to Psalms, back to Isaiah, back to Jeremiah, back to Zechariah. As you come to him, who's you? That's me. That's you. That's the church of Jesus Christ. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected. We knew that was coming. That was the promise of the Messiah by men, by his very own people, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house so that now you are not a filthy priest, guilty of death, but a holy priesthood. Now you have, you are usable in the hands of God to offer spiritual sacrifices that will be accepted to acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That in other words, what Christ is doing is he is laying himself down as the stone in the temple upon which he will build a church, a new temple. Me and you. Me and you. Oh, we go. We said, God, I can't be used for anything. God, you gotta use somebody different. Don't use me. I'm too filthy. God, I'm I'm incapable. And He says, I know, I know. That's why I sent my son. My son came, and my son made you a temple of Himself. And so, yes, you can do it. Yes, no, you, you can't help teenagers. No, you can't preach the gospel. No, you can't reach the nations. No, you can't plant churches. No, you can't disciple your children. No, no, you can't accomplish anything because you are weak and pathetic and filthy until, until, until you are made into a temple of the living God by the living Messiah who has come as the priest king to transform you by laying down himself and now in you his presence dwells and he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world and so now that which you couldn't do you can do that which you weren't capable of you are capable of not because you are new not because you because you are strong but because you are new and in you his strength is manifest brothers and sisters here we are 500 years before the person of Christ and all we can see is a portrait of the person of Christ Isn't that good news? And it comes with a securing promise that as he constructs this temple out of living stones, that the far off are going to help him build. Verse 15, And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. Who are the far off? It it becomes a term that is synonymous with the Gentiles. it, It represents those people that are so far away from the people of God, they've never even heard of the promises of God. Those people that are supposed to be too far away for God to care about Those people that are supposed to be too far away to hear about the renown of the glory of the living God. Those who are supposed to be too far away to be able to taste of his mercy and know of his grace and enjoy his provision. Those who are too far away. And what does he say? That the Messiah is coming and those who are far off will be brought near. And they will be used not just to sit there and sing songs. Oh, that's part of it. They will be used to help. You are going to help Christ. You have been helped so much by Christ. And he says, yes, the kingdom is for you to come and to enjoy. And the kingdom is for you to come and build. That in one sense, as the temple, you enjoy the presence of God. In another sense, the, as the temple, you are now empowered to go and to build the temple. To find more living stones. And so now you and I, what do we do when we feel useless? What do we do when we feel powerless? What do we do when we feel overcome? What do we do when we feel a lack of motivation? We look to Christ. We wallpaper our minds with the image and the glory and the grandeur of the Christ that has come. That we adore and we look to Christ and we get to work. We get to work. Brothers and sisters, the Cheeha Valley is lost. We have to get to work. The people that you work with are hopeless. We have to get to work. Your children need Christ. We have to get to work. The nations are gone. We have to get to work. The far off haven't yet heard. And yet we who were far off have been brought near and given a mission and a commission from our Lord to go and tell. And we have been provided so plentifully that we can give everything that we have and not run out of a single thing. Oh, wallpaper your mind with the glory of Christ. Save this picture to look at again and again and again. And as it lifts up your spirit and then reminds you of who you are. Oh, Get busy and get to work to build a kingdom, to build a temple against whom the gates of hell will not prevail. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one on one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. and We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.